Chapter Three of Three Men on the Bummel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Three Men on the Bummel by Jerome K. Jerome. Chapter Three Harris's One Fault. Harris and the Angel. A Patent Bicycle Lamp. THE IDEAL SADDLE THE OVERHOLLER HIS EAGLE EYE HIS METHOD HIS CHEERY CONFIDENCE HIS SIMPLE AND INEXPENSIVE TASTES HIS APPEARANCE HOW TO GET RID OF HIM GEORGE AS PROPHET THE GENTLE ART OF MAKING ONESELF DISAGREEABLE IN A FOREIGN TONGUE GEORGE AS A STUDENT OF HUMAN NATURE he proposes an experiment. His prudence. Harris's support secured upon conditions. On Monday afternoon, Harris came round. He had a cycling paper in his hand. I said, If you take my advice, you will leave it alone. Harris said, Leave what alone? I said, That brand new patent. Revolution in cycling, record-breaking tomfoolishness, whatever it may be, the advertisement of which you have there in your hand. He said, Well, I don't know. There will be some steep hills for us to negotiate. I guess we shall want a good break. I said, We shall want a break. I agree. What we shall not want is a mechanical surprise that we don't understand and that never acts when it is wanted. This thing, he said, acts automatically. You needn't tell me, I said. I know exactly what it will do, by instinct. Going uphill, it will jam the wheel so effectively that we shall have to carry the machine bodily. The air at the top of the hill will do it good, and it will suddenly come right again. Going downhill, it will stop reflecting what a nuisance it has been. This will lead to remorse, and finally to despair. It will say to itself, I'm not fit to be a break. I don't help these fellows. I only hinder them. I'm a curse. That's what I am. And without a word of warning, it will chuck the whole business. That is what that break will do. Leave it alone. You are a good fellow, I continued. But you have one fault. What? he asked indignantly. You have too much faith. I answered. If you read an advertisement, you go away and believe it. Every experiment that every fool has thought of in connection with cycling, you have tried. Your guardian angel appears to be a capable and conscientious spirit, and hitherto she has seen you through. Take my advice, and don't try her too far. She must have had a busy time since you started cycling. Don't go on till you make her mad. He said, if every man talked like that, there would be no advancement made in any department of life. If nobody ever tried a new thing, the world would come to a standstill. It is by— I know all that can be said on that side of the argument, I interrupted. I agree in trying new experiments up to thirty-five. After thirty-five, I consider a man is entitled to think of himself. You and I— 
have done our duty in this direction, you especially. You have been blown up by a patent gas lamp, he said. I really think you know that was my fault. I think I must have screwed it up too tight. I said, I am quite willing to believe that if there was a wrong way of handling the thing, that is the way you handle it. You should take that tendency of yours into consideration. It bears upon the argument. Myself, I did not notice what you did. I only know we were riding peacefully and pleasantly along the Whitby Road, discussing the Thirty Years' War, when your lamp went off like a pistol shot. The start sent me into the ditch in your wife's face. When I told her there was nothing the matter, and that she was not to worry because the two men would carry you upstairs, and the doctor would be round in a minute bringing the nurse with him, still lingers in my memory. He said, I wish you would have thought to pick up the lamp. I should like to have found out what was the cause of its going off like that. I said, There was not time to pick up the lamp. I calculate it would have taken two hours to have collected it. As to its going off, the mere fact of its being advertised as the safest lamp ever invented would of itself to any one but you have suggested accident. Then there was that electric lamp, I continued. Well, that really did give a fine light, he replied. You said so yourself. I said it gave a brilliant light in the King's Road, Brighton, and frightened a horse. The moment we got into the dark beyond Kemp Town, it went out, and you were summoned for riding without a light. You may remember that on sunny afternoons you used to ride about with that lamp shining for all it was worth. When lighting up time came, it was naturally tired, and wanted a rest. It was a bit irritating, that lamp, he murmured. I remember it. I said, it irritated me. It must have been worse for you. Then there are saddles, I went on. I wish to get this lesson home to him. Can you think of any saddle ever advertised that you have not tried? He said, it has been an idea of mine that the right saddle is to be found. I said, you give up that idea. This is an imperfect world of joy and sorrow mingled. There may be a better land where bicycle saddles made out of rainbow, stuffed with cloud. In this world, the simplest thing is to get used to something hard. There was that saddle you bought in Birmingham. It was divided in the middle and looked like a pair of kidneys. He said, You mean that one constructed on anatomical principles? Very likely. I replied. The box you bought it in had a picture on the cover representing a sitting skeleton, or rather that part of a skeleton which does sit. He said, It was quite correct. It showed you the true position of the— I said, We will not go into details. The picture always seemed to me indelicate. He said, Medically speaking, it was right. Possibly, I said for a man who rode in nothing but his bones. I only know that I tried it myself, and that to a man who wore flesh it was agony. Every time you went over a stone or a rut it nipped you. It was like riding on an irritable lobster. You rode that for a month. I thought it only right to give it a fair trial, he answered. I said, you gave your family a fair trial also, if you will allow me the use of slang. Your wife told me 
that never in the whole course of your married life had she known you so bad-tempered, so unchristian-like, as you were that month. Then you remembered the other saddle, the one with the spring under it. He said, "'You mean the spiral?' I said, "'I mean that one that jerked you up and down like a jack-in-the-box. Sometimes you came down again in the right place, and sometimes you didn't. I am not referring to these matters merely to recall painful memories, but I want to impress you with the folly of trying experiments at your time of life.' He said, "'I wish you wouldn't hop so much on my age. A man at thirty-four. A man at what?' he said. "'If you don't want the thing, don't have it. If your machine runs away with you down a mountain, and you and George get flung through the church roof, don't blame me.' "'I cannot promise for George,' I said. "'A little thing will sometimes irritate him, as you know. If such an accident as you suggest happen, he may be cross, but I will undertake to explain to him that it was not your fault.' "'Is the thing all right?' he asked. "'The tandem,' I replied, "'is well.' He said, "'Have you overhauled it?' I said, "'I have not, nor is any one else going to overhaul it. The thing is now in working order, and it is going to remain in working order till we start.' I have had experience of this overhauling. There was a man at Folkestone I used to meet him on the Lees. He proposed one evening we should go for a long bicycle ride together on the following day, and I agreed. I got up early for me. I made an effort, and was pleased with myself. He came in half an hour late. I was waiting for him in the garden. It was a lovely day. He said, "'That's a good-looking machine of yours. How does it run?' "'Oh, like most of them,' I answered. "'Easily enough in the morning.' goes a little stiffly after lunch. He caught hold of it by the front wheel and the fork, and shook it violently. I said, "'Don't do that. You'll hurt it.' I did not see why he should shake it. It had not done anything to him. Besides, if it wanted shaking, I was the proper person to shake it. I felt such as I should, had he started whacking my dog. He said, "'This front wheel wobbles.' I said, it doesn't if you don't wobble it. It didn't wobble, as a matter of fact. Nothing worth calling a wobble. He said, This is dangerous. Have you got a screw-hammer? I ought to have been firm. But I thought that perhaps he really did know something about the business. I went to the tool-shed to see what I could find. When I came back, he was sitting on the ground with the front wheel between his legs. He was playing with it, twiddling it around between his fingers. The remnant of the machine was lying on the gravel path beside him. He said, "'Something has happened to this front wheel of yours.' "'It looks like it, doesn't it?' I answered. But he was the sort of man that never understands satire. He said, "'It looks to me as if the bearings were all wrong.' I said, "'Don't you trouble about it any more. You will make yourself tired. Let us put it back and get off.' He said, we may as well see what is the matter with it, now it is out. He talked as though it had dropped out by accident. Before I could stop him, he had unscrewed something somewhere, and out rolled all over the path some dozen or so little balls. "'Catch em! he shouted. "'Catch em! We mustn't lose any of them!' He was quite excited about them. We groveled round for half an hour, and found sixteen. 
He said he hoped we had got them all, because if not, it would make a serious difference to the machine. He said there was nothing you should be more careful about in taking a bicycle to pieces than seeing you did not lose any of the balls. He explained that you ought to count them as you took them out, and see that exactly the same number went back in each place. I promised if ever I took a bicycle to pieces, I would remember his advice. I put the balls for safety in my hat, and I put my hat upon the doorstep. It was not a sensible thing to do, I admit. As a matter of fact, it was a silly thing to do. I am not as a rule addle-headed. His influence must have affected me. He then said that while he was about it, he would see to the chain for me, and at once began taking off the gear-case. I did try to persuade him from that. I told him what an experienced friend of mine once said to me solemnly. "'If anything goes wrong with your gear-case, sell the machine and buy a new one. It comes cheaper,' he said. "'People talk like that who understand nothing about machines. Nothing is easier than taking off a gear-case.' I had to confess he was right. In less than five minutes he had the gear-case in two pieces, lying on the path, and was grovelling for screws. He said it was always a mystery to him the way screws disappeared. We were still looking for the screws when Ethel Bertha came out. She seemed surprised to find us there. She said she thought we had started hours ago. He said, We shan't be long now. I'm just helping your husband to overhaul this machine of his. It's a good machine, but they all want going over occasionally. Ethelbertha said, If you want to wash yourselves when you've done, you might go into the back kitchen. If you don't mind, the girls have just finished the bedrooms. She told me that if she met Kate, they would probably go for a sail, but that in any case, she would be back to lunch. I would have given a sovereign to be going with her. I was getting heartily sick of standing about watching this fool breaking up my bicycle. Common sense continued to whisper to me, Stop him before he does any more mischief. You have a right to protect your own property from the ravages of a lunatic. Take him by the scruff of the neck and kick him out of the gate. But I am weak when it comes to hurting other people's feelings. And I let him muddle on. He gave up looking for the rest of the screws. He said screws had a knack of turning up when you least expected them, and that now he would see to the chain. He tightened it till it would not move. Next he loosened it until it was twice as loose as it was before. Then he said we had better think about getting the front wheel back into its place again. I held the fork open, and he worried with the wheel. At the end of ten minutes I suggested he should hold the forks, and that I should handle the wheel, and we changed places. At the end of his first minute he dropped the machine, and took a short walk round the croquet lawn, with his hands pressed together between his thighs. He explained as he walked that the thing to be careful about was to avoid getting your fingers pinched between the forks and the spokes of the wheel. I replied, I was convinced from my own experience, that there was much truth in what he said. He wrapped himself up in a couple of dusters, and we commenced again. At length we did get the thing into position, and the moment it was in position he burst out laughing. I said, "'What's the joke?' He said, "'Well, I'm an ass.' <laughs> it was the first thing he had said that made me respect him. I asked him what had led him to this discovery. He said, "'We've forgotten the balls.' I looked for my hat. It was lying topsy-turvy in the middle of the path, and Ethel Bertha's favourite hound was swallowing the balls 
as fast as he could pick them up. "'He will kill himself,' said Epson. "'I have never met him since that day, thank the Lord. "'But I think his name was Epson.' "'They are solid steel,' I said. "'I am not troubling about the dog. "'He has had a bootlace and a packet of needles already this week. "'Nature's the best guide. "'Puppies seem to require this kind of stimulant. "'What I am thinking about is my bicycle.' He was of a cheerful disposition, he said. Well, we must put back all we can, and trust to Providence. We found eleven. We fixed six on one side, and five on the other, and half an hour later the wheel was in its place again. It need hardly be added that it really did wobble now. A child might have noticed it. Epson said it would do for the present. He appeared to be getting a bit tired himself. If I had let him, he would, I believe, at this point have gone home. I was determined now, however, that he should stop and finish. I had abandoned all thoughts of a ride. My pride in the machine he had killed. My only interest lay now in seeing him scratch and bump and pinch himself. I revived his drooping spirits with a glass of beer and some judicious praise. I said, Watching you do this is of real use to me. It is not only your skill and dexterity that fascinates me. It is your cheery confidence in yourself, your inexplicable hopefulness, that does me good. Thus encouraged, he set to work to refix the gear-case. He stood the bicycle against the house and worked from the off-side. Then he stood it against a tree and worked from the near-side. Then I held it for him while he lay on the ground with his head between the wheels and worked at it from below and dropped oil upon himself. Then he took it away from me and doubled himself across it like a pack-saddle, till he lost his balance and slid over on to his head. Three times he said, "'Thank heaven! That's right at last!' And twice he said, "'No! I'm damned if it is after all!' What he said the third time, I try to forget. Then he lost his temper and tried bullying the thing. The bicycle, I was glad to see, showed spirit and the subsequent proceeding degenerated into little else than a rough and tumble fight between him and the machine. One moment the bicycle would be on the gravel path, and he on top of it. The next, the position would be reversed, he on the gravel path, the bicycle on him. Now he would be standing, flushed with victory, the bicycle firmly fixed between his legs, but his triumph would be short-lived. By a sudden quick movement, it would free itself and turn upon him, hit him sharply over the head with one of its handles. At a quarter to one, dirty and disheveled, cut and bleeding, he said, I think that will do, and rose, and wiped his brow. The bicycle looked as if it also had had enough of it, which had received most punishment it would have been difficult to say. I took him into the back kitchen, where, so far as was possible without soda and proper tools, he cleaned himself and sent him home. The bicycle I put into a cab and took round to the nearest repairing shop. The foreman of the works came up and looked at it. "'What do you want me to do with that?' he said. "'I want you,' I said, so far as is possible, to restore it. "'It's a bit far gone,' he said, "'but I'll do my best.' He did his best, which came to two pounds ten but it was never the same machine again, and at the end of the season I left it in an agent's hands to sell. I wished to deceive nobody. I instructed the man 
to advertise it as last year's machine. The agent advised me not to mention any date. He said, In this business, it isn't a question of what is true and what isn't. It's a question of what you can get people to believe. Now, between you and me, it don't look like last year's machine, so far as looks are concerned. It might be a ten-year-old. We'll say nothing about the date. We'll just get what we can. I left the matter to him, and he got me five pounds, which he said was more than he had expected. There are two ways you can get exercise out of a bicycle. You can overhaul it, or you can ride it. On the whole, I am not sure that a man who takes his pleasure overhauling does not have the best of the bargain. He is independent of the weather and the wind. The state of the roads troubles him not. Give him a screw-hammer, a bundle of rags, an oil-can, and something to sit down upon, and he is happy for the day. He has to put up with certain disadvantages, of course. There is no joy without alloy. He himself always looks like a tinker, and his machine always suggests the idea that having stolen it, he has tried to disguise it. But, as he rarely gets beyond the first milestone with it, this, perhaps, does not matter much. The mistake some people make is in thinking they can get both forms of sport out of the same machine. This is impossible. No machine will stand the double strain. You must make up your mind whether you are going to be an overhauler or a rider. Personally, I prefer to ride. Therefore, I take care to have near me nothing that can tempt me to overhaul. When anything happens to my machine, I wheel it to the nearest repairing shop. If I am too far from the town or village to walk, I sit by the roadside and wait till a cart comes along. My chief danger, I always find, is from the wandering overhauler. The sight of a broken-down machine is the overhauler as a wayside corpse to a crow. He swoops down upon it with a friendly yell of triumph. At first I used to try politeness. I would say, It is nothing. Don't you trouble. You ride on and enjoy yourself. I beg it of you as a favour. Please, go away. Experience has taught me, however, that courtesy is of no use in such an extremity. Now I say, You, go away, and leave the thing alone, or I will knock your silly head off. And if you look determined, and have a good stout cudgel in your hand, you can generally drive him off. George came in later in the day. He said, Well, do you think everything will be ready? I said, Everything will be ready by Wednesday, except perhaps you and Harris. He said, Is the tandem all right? The tandem, I said, is well. He said, You don't think it wants overhauling? I replied, Age and experience have taught me that there are few matters concerning which a man does well to be positive. Consequently, these remain to me now but a limited number of questions upon which I feel any degree of certainty. Among such still unshaken beliefs, however, is the conviction that that tandem does not want overhauling. I also feel a presentiment that, provided my life is spared, no human being between now and Wednesday morning is going to overhaul it. George said, I should not show temper over the matter if I were you. There will come a day, perhaps, not far distant, when that bicycle, with a couple of mountains between it and the nearest repairing shop, will, in spite of your chronic desire for rest, have to be overhauled. 
then you will clamour for people to tell you where you put the oil-can and what you've done with the screw-hammer then while you exert yourself holding the thing steady against a tree you will suggest that somebody else should clean the chain and pump the back wheel i felt there was justice in george's rebuke also a certain amount of prophetic wisdom i said forgive me if i seemed unresponsive the truth is harris was round this morning george said say no more i understand besides what i came to talk to you about was another matter look at that he handed me a small book bound in red cloth it was a guide to english conversation for the use of german travellers it commenced on a steamboat and terminated at the doctor's its longest chapter being devoted to conversation in a railway carriage among apparently a compartment load of quarrelsome and ill-mannered lunatics can you not get further away from me sir it is impossible madam my neighbour here is very stout shall we not endeavour to arrange our legs please have the goodness to keep your elbows down pray do not inconvenience yourself madam if my shoulder is of any accommodation to you whether intended to be said sarcastically or not there was nothing to indicate i really must request you to move a little madam i can hardly breathe the author's idea being presumably that by this time the whole party was mixed up together on the floor the chapter concluded with the phrase here we are at our destination god be thanked god say donk a pious exclamation which under the circumstances must have taken the form of a chorus at the end of the book was an appendix giving the german traveller hints concerning the preservation of his health and comfort during his sojourn in english towns chief among such hints being advice to him to always travel with a supply of disinfectant powder to always lock his bedroom door at night and to always carefully count his small change it is not a brilliant publication i remarked handing the book back to george it is not a book that personally i would recommend to any german about to visit england i think i would get him disliked but i have read books published in london for the use of english travellers abroad every wit is foolish some educated idiot misunderstanding seven languages would appear to go about writing these books for the misinformation and false guidance of modern europe you cannot deny said george that these books are in large request they are bought by the thousand i know in every town in europe there must be people going about talking this sort of thing maybe i replied but fortunately nobody understands them i have noticed myself men standing on railway platforms and at street corners reading aloud from such books nobody knows what language they are speaking nobody has the slightest knowledge of what they are saying this is perhaps as well were they understood they would probably be assaulted george said maybe you're right my idea is to see what would happen if they were understood my proposal is to get to london early on wednesday morning and spend an hour or two going about and shopping with the aid of this book there are one or two little things i want and a hat and a pair of bedroom slippers among other articles our boat does not leave tilbury till twelve and that just gives us time i want to try this sort of talk where i can properly judge of its effect i want to see how the foreigner feels when he is talked to in this way it struck me as a sporting idea in my enthusiasm i offered to accompany him 
and wait outside the shop. I said I thought that Harris would like to be in on it, too, or rather outside. George said that was not quite his scheme. His proposal was that Harris and I should accompany him into the shop, with Harris, who looks formidable, to support him, and myself at the door to call the police if necessary. He said he was willing to adventure the thing. We walked round to Harris's, and put the proposal before him. He examined the book, especially the chapters dealing with the purchase of shoes and hats. He said, "'If George talks to any bootmaker, or any hat of the things that are up put down here, it is not support he will want. It is carry into the hospital that he will need.' That made George angry. "'You talk,' said George, "'as though I were a foolhardy boy without any sense. I shall select from the more polite and less irritating speeches.' the grosser insults I shall avoid. This being clearly understood, Harris gave in his adhesion, and our stop was fixed for early Wednesday morning. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tara Mendoza Phoenix, Arizona April 2011